the National Archives podcast series, Selling History, the role of the past at Fortnum and Mason, presented by Dr. Andrea Tanner. This event was recorded live on the 26th of April, 2012, at the National Archives, Kew. My name is Andrea. Um, I live in a cupboard on the second floor of 181 Piccadilly, and my job is to look after the archive of Fortnum and Mason. The archive isn't as wonderful as it ought to be, thanks to the attentions of the Luftwaffe in uh, the early 1940s, but we've still got some riches, and I, I thought today I would show you some of what we've got. I'll rush you through the last 305 years of Fortnum's history. There won't be an exam at the end of it, so don't worry. <coughs> and we'll show you how a company that is over 300 years old uses its past in the present and to plan for the future. So the legend is that Fortnum and Mason was started by two young men called William Fortnum and Hugh Mason in really just a doorway in Duke Street, St. James's. William Fortnum was a footman at the court of Queen Anne. Hugh Mason was his uh, landlord. He owned delivery stables in Mason's Yard. Mason's Yard is still there, those of you who go to the London Library or know about the White Cube Gallery. And the legend is that one of William Fortnum's perks was to empty the candlesticks of half-burnt candles every evening, fill them up with new ones ready for the morning. He got to take the candles home with him melted them down, put new wicks in them, and would bring them back and sell them to the ladies of the court the next day. And that's the legend of how Fortnum and Mason started. And it might be true, and it might not be true, and I'm not going to say that it's not true. I suspect it's a little more complicated than that. Although the Fortnum family were in royal service, but they originate in a village called Epwell in North Oxfordshire, where they are uh, traders. And by the end of the 17th century, they're the coffee men to the University of Oxford. Some of them are in the high-class building trade. They come to London after uh, the Great Fire of London to help build up the city and the city of Westminster. And some of them are in the East India Company. So by 1707, by the date of the foundation of the company or the partnership, they're in a very good position to sell overpriced, expensive, uh, <laughs> imported commodities to the new landed gentry and the aristocracy. The Fortnum family, quite astute, they don't give up their day job. The last person to be in royal service was Charles Fortnum, who was born in 1739 in Epwell in North Oxfordshire. And he joined uh, the young Queen Charlotte Sophia when she got married to George III in 1761 as a footman in her household. And in 1788, he said, Mom, my feet are killing me and I need to go and uh, concentrate on my business. And she said, oh, that's all right then, Charles, off you go. But a few years later, she asked him to come back. And he came back as page of the presence page of the presence, rather an important position within her household. And if you wanted access to all the wonders that her household might be able to offer you, it was very simple. You open up an account at Messrs Fortnum and Mason, 181 Piccadilly. He was the gateway to the Queen, but he also used, as many people did, his position at court to glorify his business dealings. And I won't say that still goes on today, but the connection with the royal family and with royalty and aristocracy 
is quite an important marketing, discrete marketing tool today. In 1840, Charles' son, Richard, decided that he was going to refocus the business. It had begun in Duke Street, so not even on Piccadilly, in 1707. By 1756, it had moved into, its main entrance was on Piccadilly, and he decided, having made a great deal of money out of the wars with the French, during between 1790 and 1815, he would plough his profits back into a new building. And the new building is still there. If you stand in front of the Geological Society and look at Fortnum's, you can still see Richard Fortnum's building. It looked very old-fashioned, even in 1840. It's based on a, on a 17th century Paduan mansion. But it was rather an interesting building in some ways, in that it has two innovations. It's, it looks old-fashioned, but it's very modern, and that's a theme that goes through Fortnum's life even today. It has plate glass windows. Plate glass windows were only invented three years before the building went up. Suddenly, you could be able to see the wonderful things that are inside Fortnum's windows. But those windows are lit by gas. So 24 hours a day, you can see the amazing things that they are creating and that they are importing from around the world. And that's when Fortnum's windows become important, very important aspects of the company's history and of the company's identity. And they are still very much part of the company's identity, particularly at Christmas, if any of you come to London. Uh, one of the things we put into the windows in the 1860s was a live turtle in a tank to show that our real turtle soup was made of real turtles. And the new Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals took great exception to this. And so she was turned into soup quicker than we had expected. Another thing we put in the windows was honey. Honey is an another very important commodity to Fortnum and Mason. And in the 1860s, we devised a means whereby we produced a honey that was perfectly translucent. It was perfectly clear, but it was also rose-coloured. And it was produced with a new method that didn't kill the bees. So we were already promoting corporate social responsibility in the 1860s, but using the windows to backlight the honey for this wonderful new new product and apparently a jar was sent to the Kensington Museums, I suppose it would have ended up in the Natural History Museum, for them to keep and I tried a few years ago to find out if they still had it but I think it might have been put on some buttered bread and had for tea one day. We have a lot of famous customers, we have had a lot of famous customers. It is not the policy of the shop to mention people who are alive who shop at Fortnum and Mason, and we don't allow people to photograph inside the shop without specific permission because it's not fair on customers who want to just enjoy a bit of shopping. But we do shamelessly exploit our past famous customers, one of whom is Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens rather liked Fortnum and Mason. Um, he used to give us cribs. I'm sure he wasn't bribed to do it, but maybe he was. He mentions us quite a lot in household words, particularly on Derby Day, and he loved our chocolate. And in the archive, one of the few original things I have from the 19th century is a little note from him to his butler. 
and he's saying that he wants a small cooked ham and a small Yorkshire pie from Messrs Fortnum and Mason. So we're rather pleased to have that, although it's not in the archive at the moment. It's at the Museum of London at the Bicentenary Exhibition. A lot of people, when they ask what do you think about Fortnum and Mason, what comes to mind, they will say tea, but they will also say hampers. And the hampers really start in the 18th century, not as picnic hampers, because at the beginning of the 18th century, no self-respecting person would have been seen dead eating out of doors. That was for the working classes and agricultural labourers. But after the Romantic movement at the end of the 18th century, getting back to nature, eating out of doors, became very fashionable. None more so than at events such as the, the Derby. This is a, a punch cartoon. We have the original of that showing some young bloods going to the Derby with their two Fortnum and Mason hampers. One of the things that you would have found in a Fortnum and Mason hamper is something that we claim to have invented. This is the scotched egg. Um, we have records showing that we had produced this for travellers, for travellers' baskets, which is how the picnic basket began as early as 1738. But I think it probably didn't look like this. I think it was a pullet's egg and it was surrounded with force meat. It was a bit more haggis-like than sausage-like. would have had a lot of mace and pepper in it. And we've rather run with the scotch egg theme in recent years. You can have a salmon scotch egg at Fortnum's, a quail scotch egg. We did an ostrich scotch egg for a Guinness Book of Records, the world's largest scotch egg in the world. And we also, one Easter, did a, did a chocolate scotch egg. So um, it's become a bit of a theme at Fortnum's. We have a few records relating to customers, not too many. This is the Earl of Coventry, 1807. It's June 25th. Most of our custom up until the Second World War was account custom. Cash was a bit too vulgar, didn't cross over uh, the threshold of, of Fortnum's, really. Most customers were account customers. You got your goods, you paid one to three months in arrears. If you paid quickly, uh, you got 5% off. It doesn't sound like a good business model to me, but it certainly worked for Fortnum's uh, in the past. Another of our famous customers is Florence Nightingale. One of the features of Fortnum's is that it has a, had and has a very strong relationship with the armed forces because of the nature of its customers. Fortnum supplied officers' messes and individual army and navy officers really from the beginning. And whenever there was conflict, and the British Army always seemed to be involved in conflict, you would find Fortnum and Mason agents wherever the army happened to be ordering things on behalf of officers and making sure that they got their own supplies. 1854, one of our customers, Miss Nightingale, was alerted to the appalling conditions of ordinary soldiers in the Crimea. A few months later, she set up her hospital, tented hospital at Scutari. And another one of our customers, Queen Victoria, ordered us to send out 125 pounds of concentrated beef tea to be used by Miss Nightingale and her nurses in the hospital. Concentrated beef tea was a speciality of ours. It's really a cow rendered down to its constituent essence. It's like a big sausage, very, very hard, about as hard as this table, because it was, they were transported in wooden sailing vessels all over the world, and they had to be hard so that the weevils and the rats wouldn't get at them. 
and all you did was slice very thin slices of it and then dissolve it in hot water and there you have an instant protein drink. So it's a bit like a sort of oxo cube but uh, rather larger. We refer to it in our packaging. We have concentrated beef tea, but it's in a rather civilised jar now, and it's more of a liquidy paste than not. But on the, the packaging, we have referenced Florence Nightingale. So we have a little nightingale holding a toy soldier from the time of the Crimea on the label. Picnics are an important part of the company's business now and have been for generations. This is um, a magic lantern slide from the stereoscopic company who were based in Regent Street. It's not real. Uh, this is obviously done in a studio. These are models. But it just goes to show you that um, there's no such thing as a small Fortnum & Mason picnic basket. I've been trying to figure out what it is they're eating, and I, it's not sufficiently clear for me to do it, but I think I'm probably going to have this scanned and just find out what constituted an early Victorian picnic for the wealthy when they were shopping at Fortnum's. Speaking of which, this is the equivalent of today. We do a lot of events so that, you know, if you're going to Wimbledon or Henley or Ascot or uh, Badminton, we will supply you with fresh picnics now. And these are this was sent to us by some customers to show they were having a jolly good time. The hamper nowadays is probably more important to us at Christmas than at any other time. And that didn't really start until the First World War. We didn't really make Christmas puddings and mince pies and Christmas cake until the First World War. We certainly sold the ingredients for you to make them or for your servants to make them, but it was really the Great War that really began convenience food for Christmas. And Fortnum's hampers nowadays tend to be much more important at Christmas. But, you know, no opportunity is ever, uh, <laughs> is ever given. We had a very important trio of visitors for the Queen's Jubilee last month. Yes, it was last month on St. David's Day. And we made up hampers <coughs> that we thought would specifically appeal to the three ladies. But in each of them went uh, hearty treats for happy hounds. So a giant <laughs> dog biscuit, which uses an image from my archive collection on the label. This is the oldest catalogue that I possess, I'm afraid. It's 1849. Uh, the rest of them have got blown up. And as you see, brevity isn't very important in uh, Victorian copywriting. So Fortnum and Mason and Company, purveyors of preserved provisions, etc., for pleasure yachts, cabin stores, the East and West Indies, and general sea and family use, consisting of every requisite for the table, pre prepared in a very superior manner to those hitherto in use at their foreign warehouse and magasin de comestibles, Piccadilly, the corner of Duke Street. What you might notice is that there are no prices on this catalogue. If you had to ask, you couldn't afford to shop at Fortnum & Mason. But tea is on the top of the first corner of the first page. Tea is the driver of the business. It's been the driver of the business since we sold black bohi tea in 1707. Then you have coffee, chocolate and cocoa, which is only, of course, for drinking and cooking with at this time. Sugars, spices, sauces, vinegars and pickles. So we're providing things for people to preserve food, but also to enhance food as well and to make it a little more interesting. 
but we don't just sell very posh things. In 1886, a young man called Henry J. Hines came to Fortnum's from Baltimore, and he had a carpet bag full of his new improved and patented bottled and tinned produce. And he asked the buyer, what did he think? And the buyer said, I like them. We'll have the lot. So Fortnum's was the first place in Britain to sell Heinz baked beans. And in 2007, when we had our tercentenary, Heinz very sweetly produced 3,000 of these tins in our Odeneal, not in their colour. Uh, and they, the label says, first at Fortnum's. And we have an enormous display in the shop at the moment of the Heinz label as it was in 1952, because they have reproduced this for the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. First World War came along, and it's rather a sadness to say, but it's true, that war tended to be very good for business for Fortnum and Mason, really because of the class, the sort of people who were our customers. But the First World War, the war to end all wars, was something rather different. But this is my Christmas catalogue from 1914. This was produced three weeks after war was declared in 1914. So we already have agents at the Western Front. We're sending them off to North Africa and to the Middle East as well. And already by this time, we have a British Expeditionary Force series of, of specially packaged and specially prepared foodstuffs. By 1915, the whole of the first floor of the building was given over to officers' supplies. You could buy, have your uniforms created at Fortnum's. We'll supply you with your weaponry, your ammunition, inflatable baths, medicated loo paper, tinned quail stuffed with foie gras, lemonade tablets, our own patented um, trench watches come into being in 1915. It was the most enormous, enormous enterprise. We also invented some slightly odd things during the war. Margot Asquith, who was the second wife of H.H. H. Asquith, got into a lot of trouble in the war because she was perceived to be wasting food. So she asked us to help and we made her a composite sandwich filling just for her, which of course, being Fortnum's, had foie gras in it. <laughs> During the interwar period, we opened up lots of new departments. The shop was completely rebuilt between 1926 and 1931, and we had some, we turned ourselves into a department store, but because it's Fortnum's, it's a slightly odd department store, or unusual department store. We had a, a note couture department, which had a children's haute couture department attached to it. So if you had a special outfit that, that you were particularly fond of, we could make the same outfit for your daughter, down to the shoes, the handbag and the hat. We turned the officer supply department into two departments, one of them being the sports department. This is Miss Joyce Weathered, who was the World Lady Amateur Golfing Champion in the 1920s. And Miss Weathered came to Fortnum's as a consultant and she would sell you uh, her own brand of golf clubs. She'd advise you on the plus fours and plus twos you have to wear. She'd sell you shoes and she'd tell you what was wrong with your putting. We also sold tennis courts indoor and out and would lay them for you. We had experts from Wimbledon to help you with your serve and volley. You could also learn how to ski at Fortnum and Mason. We had an indoor ski slope from 
October to January each year with a slow motion film to show you how to do it. And then we'll, uh, and a chap called Vivian Caulfield, who was one of the great figures of the interwar skiing world, to teach you how to do it. Another innovation in the interwar period was, you might have heard, there was something called the servant problem after the Great War. That is, there was a bit of a shortage of servants. Lots of women who had worked in transport and in offices and uh, in industry during the war didn't really fancy going back to being scullery maids. So there was a shortage, especially in the southeast, of domestic servants. We recognised this and we brought in this chap, who's Marcel Boulestin. Marcel Boulestin was a Frenchman from the Londe who had worked for the British Army during the First World War. And he'd come to London after the war to set up as an interior designer. But after a few months and having eaten too many awful restaurant and domestic dinners, he decided that what the British really needed was to learn how to cook French food. So he produced a series of books on how to cook. And I suppose if they were today, it would be French cooking for dummies. But we employed Marcel Boulestin to come and teach ladies how to cook. So for five guineas you would have a series of lessons in the room, in the shop. You could buy all the utensils, you could buy all the ingredients to create the perfect boeuf bourguignon or eau flottant or whatever. And if you didn't fancy actually cooking it when you got home, there were kilner jars and dishes already made up. You could just buy them and lie to your husband when you got home about who'd actually cooked the dinner. Marcel Boulestin I suppose has been inspiration for us again because we have a demonstration kitchen now where our chefs give demonstrations and lessons to everything from tots on how to decorate Easter eggs to uh, how to bone uh, chickens and how to deal with fish. 1920s and 30s, really the first time Fortnum's ever advertised and a good deal of the archive I look after is, consists of of advertising material, of catalogues. This is a commentary. Commentaries were little booklets that were sent out three to four times a year to our account customers that have a few things about what we're selling in them, but they're really designed to make people smile and to remind them to fill up their store cupboard and really to remember Fortnum's when they were far away. They were incredibly successful and spawned a few imitators, but even today provide a bit of inspiration. This is um, a politically incorrect slide for which I apologise, but it's partly to show you how important the empire was, not just as a supplier of goods to the company, but as customers. And I think as a piece of design, it's just brilliant. Because if you've got family in Shanghai or you want to send something off to a district officer, and you want it to get there by Christmas, you have to have it ordered by the 30th of October. I think it's very clever, although I'm not sure that the illustrations would work. In fact, they shouldn't work today. This is um, one of my Christmas catalogues that gives you an idea of the flavour of the commentaries. And this is our Splendid Sweets box that's for sale now, and it uses the cover of the catalogue quite tidied up as the reference point. And each of these, we, we do little jars of the sweets individually and they each have a different character from the 1920s catalogue on them. One of the other departments we opened up was the expeditions department. The interwar period was a, an era, if you had the money and the inclination, of great exploration. 
we supplied every Everest expedition from 1922 onwards. We supplied um, chop boxes so that one bearer could take a week's supply for a great white hunter who would go out to shoot defenceless animals in India and in Africa. We supplied people who were taking their own light planes under the new fangled uh, cine cameras around the world uh, on expeditions. And sometimes those expeditions brought us publicity we didn't want. One of the expeditions we supplied was Carnarvon's to Tutankhamun. And um, Fortnum's features in a bit of a scandal about that because Howard Carter, it was claimed, put uncatalogued items, including a very beautiful golden uh, bust uh, of the young king in Fortnum and Mason crates that were full of empty bottles and were coming back, supposedly coming back to Fortnum. So it's a question I get asked about this maybe four or five times a year by journalists and by authors. Most of the things I'm putting up relating to the past are things for which I, I get asked, about which I get asked quite a lot. Um, it's also the time when we were using young artists. This is a Rex Whistler catalogue. Rex Whistler did quite a lot of work for us in the 1930s, as did Cecil Beaton, as did Oliver de Mola. Marion Dorn created rugs and scarves just for us. Um, Edward Borden did a great deal of work for us. This is my only catalogue for the Second World War. Until fairly recently, I would have said life was very tough for Fortnum's during the Second World War. Everything was rationed, it was really hard. We got prosecuted a few times for giving people more than they were entitled to uh, on their ration cards. But I've been doing a bit of work on the Second World War in Fortnum's recently. And our, we, we still had an haute couture department during the war. And I've come across the most wonderful advert for good things for your air raid shelter. And if you came to Fortnum's to get things for your air raid shelter, you would get things like camel hair blankets and cashmere socks and silver hip flasks and something that looks really suspiciously like a wind-up radio, which I didn't think were, were invented until quite recently. So I'm revising my attitude, and I, I do get a lot of queries about the Second World War. This is the Duke Street, German Street entrance, and it's, off, it's the early 50s. We were very lucky, although the archive was bombed, because it was moved somewhere for safekeeping. The building itself escaped um, a lot of major damage, but Burberry and the French travel service, which were next door to Fortnum's, was bombed. The Cavendish Hotel, which is here, was bombed, and our windows were put in, and we weren't allowed to do anything about it until the, the mid-50s. But the building has been very important to the identity of the shop, I suppose. This is... 1953, this is the coronation. One of the things we sold at the coronation were uh, coronation robes and coronets for peers and peeresses. And uh, I interviewed someone who worked in the haute couture department during the coronation, and she said they brought in their parents' robes, and the smell of mothballs throughout the shop was just appalling. 1951, the shop was bought by a Canadian 
called Garfield Weston and is still owned by Garfield Weston's family. And he had a good look at the business and decided to refocus it slightly. And one of the things he decided was that it had to have somewhere rather jolly to eat. You've got to have somewhere rather wonderful to eat. And so he opened up a restaurant called The Fountain Restaurant, which is still there. And The Fountain became very famous for Knickerbocker glories. And I get lots of nostalgic letters from people who remember being taken to Fortnum's at the age of five or six, where they had their first Knickerbocker glory that was bigger than they were. He's a little old, perhaps, to be having his first one. But it's rather wonderful that part of the archive is made up of the memories of customers, unbidden mostly, and uh, they're a very precious resource. I mentioned Edward Borden. Edward Borden, who's one of the most important commercial artists of the 20th century, worked for us from the 1930s until the early 60s. We are immensely proud of the work that he did for us because I think he really captured the spirit and the essence of the company and it was a very happy association. A book was uh, published a couple of years ago called Entertaining a la Carte, which includes all the illustrations for the work that he did for us. But we also, I suppose, have quite deliberately tried to make a pieces of history. This is the clock. The clock isn't as old as it looks. It was designed by Barclay Sutcliffe, who was our designer in the 50s and 60s. And it's in the Fortnum's O'Donnell. On the hour, Mr Fortnum and Mr Mason come out to 18th century heirs. They come along on gilded casters, they look at each other, they bow and they go back in. We've recently had it restored, but if I just hand this round, the clock became the logo, became the symbol of the shop, really from 1965 until 2007. The clock effectively was Fortnum's and just appeared in everything. <laughs> Between 2005 and 2007, the shop was completely revamped. It was decided that really, because so many of the supporting businesses in and around Fortnum's had gone, Simpsons had gone by this time, lots of others, that we really had to focus on what we were especially good at, which was food and drink and giving presents and eating. We put a great big hole down the middle of the building. This is the atrium, which was extraordinarily controversial inside and outside the business, but it was partly to flood the building with light and it was partly to show customers that we did have a first and a second and a third floor and it wasn't just all about the chocolate counter on the ground floor. And the atrium has proved to be the most wonderful public space really. This is how it looks at the moment. We are going overboard possibly with the Queen's Diamond Jubilee this year and this is the theme of our packaging which are the Queen's Beasts and so we have Queen's Beasts throughout the building as well as on the packaging and right the way down the middle of the of the atrium. This is one of our customers who's also one of our suppliers who came to wish us happy birthday on our tercentenary and to open up and to open up the building and this is what we prepared for his mother. We have 60 new products for the Diamond Jubilee this year. The association with the royal family and with the monarchy is a very important marketing tool, especially with overseas visitors. We have two royal warrants at the moment, one from the Queen and one from uh, the Prince of Wales. And we decided to 
to do 60 things. So they range from champagne and the usual china and tea towels to biscuits. And this is the one that's flying off the shelves. Slightly flat, uh, God save the Queen. We're also, I haven't got one to show you, but this size tin, um, we've created a, sorry about that, I overwound it. We've created um, a, un, a, a United Services gift that we're sending out to every man and woman serving in the British Armed Forces at the moment. They'll get them the weekend of the Diamond Jubilee and they've got tea and biscuits in them. And we were, we liaised a lot with the Ministry of Defence and they said the biscuits have to be dunkable. So we had to create new biscuits so that they wouldn't disintegrate in, in the tea. So um, part of the reason for the Queen coming, I'm sorry I overwound that, part of the reason for the Queen coming was to see um, this, this biscuit tin. Uh, that's the outside of the building, which is still, even after 1840, being used as, a, uh, as an advertisement. So we've got the beasts all the way up, all the way up the building. We're also revisiting our tea heritage. Tea is immensely important to the identity of the business, in the present as much as in the past. It was one of the first products we ever sold. We were the first company to buy Indian tea, as far as I can tell, at the first Indian tea auction in London in 1836. We now offer an enormous variety of teas, including Robouche and flowering teas and white teas. And as part of the re-identification with the past, we are once more rediscovering our relationship with tea. And this is Antoinette, who uh, she's sits next to me, she's taking part in uh, one of the tea ceremonies that um, we now put on, just to show that there's more to life than tea bags. Really. Tradition is extremely important to the company. At Christmas, everybody on the shop floor is dressed in red. You'll see by the inside of the store that it's got a red carpet, it's full of chandeliers, it's very traditional. To a certain extent, the building sells history but it has to be relevant to today. There's no point us being stuck in aspic. You know, we're not part of a heritage museum. We are there to sell things and to, and to endure. And the only way you can do it, I think, is by constantly re-examining yourself. It's a, it's a fine line between being a heritage brand and recognising that your USP, your unique selling point, I didn't know that acronym till I started working at Fortnum's, is the fact that you're 300 years old. But at the same time, you have to offer people what they want to buy today. And that's, I suppose, partly where I come in. So, you know, we do sell history. People who come to the shop are buying a piece of history, I hope. And sometimes I think... History can be extremely beautiful. So thank you very much for listening to me. And I hope it wasn't just an ad there. <laughs> this podcast is copyright at the National Archives. All rights reserved.